Section 25 of the Critique of Dogmatic Theology and Investigation of the Christian Teaching by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Leo Wiener. Chapter 16, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laurie Arsenault. There follows a controversy. All are wrong, but, quote, the doctrine of the Orthodox Church about the actuality of the presence of Jesus Christ in the sacrament of the Eucharist has imperturbable foundations in Holy Scripture as well as in Holy Tradition. Unquote. Here is a sample of the proofs why this action is to be understood as the Church understands it. Quote, in establishing the Eucharist, the Lord established the greatest sacrament of the New Testament, which he commanded to be performed at all times. But the importance of the sacrament necessary for our salvation, and the nature of the promise, and the nature of the commandment, demanded alike that the clearest and most definite language be used, so that it might not lead to any misunderstandings in so important a matter." Unquote. The matter and consequences of the presence of Jesus Christ in the sacrament of the Eucharist, quote, 1. If this presence consists, as we have seen, in this, that after the sanctification of the holy gifts there are present in the Eucharist and are communicated to the believers, not the bread and wine, but the real body and the real blood of the Lord, that does not mean that he is present in the sacrament, that he, as it were, penetrates, according to the Lutheran heresy, the bread and wine, which remain intact and only coexists with them, with his body and blood, but that the bread and wine are transformed, transubstantiated, transmuted into the very body and blood of the Lord. 2. Although the bread and wine in the sacrament of the Eucharist are transformed properly into the body and blood of the Lord, he is present in this sacrament, not with his body and blood alone, but with his whole soul, which is inseparably connected with this body, and with his very divinity, which is hypostatically and inseparably connected with his humanity. 3. Although the Lord's body and blood are broken in the sacrament of the communion, and are divided up, that happens only with the forms of the bread and wine in which Christ's body and blood may be seen and felt. In themselves they are completely integral and indivisible. 4. Similarly, although the sacrament of the Eucharist is performed in endless places of the world, Christ's body is always and everywhere one, and Christ's blood is always and everywhere one, and everywhere one and the same Christ complete God and complete man, integrally takes part in it. 5. If the breaded wine, through the sacramental sanctification, is transubstantiated into the real body and blood of Christ, the Savior, that means that from the time of the sanctification of the holy gifts, he is constantly present in the sacrament, that is, he is present not only in the application and reception of the sacrament by the believers, 
as the Lutherans assert, but even before the reception, for the bread and wine, having been transubstantiated into Christ's body and blood, no longer change back into their former substances, but remain the body and blood of the Lord forever, independently of whether they will be used by the believers or not. 6. If the bread and wine in the holy life-giving sacraments are the real body and the real blood of our Lord Jesus, then these sacraments ought to receive the same honor and divine worship which we owe to our Lord Jesus himself." Unquote. 217. Who may perform the sacraments of the Eucharist? Who may receive the communion, and wherein the preparation for it is to consist? The power to perform this sacrament belongs to the bishop. The bishops transfer the power to the presbyters, but deacons may not perform it, nor can laymen. But all, even babes, may receive the communion. There is a controversy about that. 2.18. The necessity of the communion of the Eucharist by all means under two kinds and the fruits of the sacrament. All must receive the communion. Proofs. Men must be communed over bread and wine and not over bread alone. Again, controversy and proofs. For this controversy, Huss was burnt and his followers were tortured. I mention only in words the controversy and the proofs. But, O oh Lord, what a terrible book would be that history of theology which should tell about all the violence, deceptions, tortures, murders which have taken place because of each of these controversies. As one now reads about these controversies, all that seems so unimportant and ludicrous, but how much wrong they have done in the world. 2.19. The Eucharist as a sacrifice. A. The verity or actuality of this sacrifice. Quote, in believing and confessing that the Most Holy Eucharist is a true sacrament, the Orthodox Church believes also and confesses in spite of the aberrations of the Protestants, that the Eucharist is at the same time a true and real sacrifice, that is, that in the Eucharist is the body and blood of our Saviour, which on the one hand are offered as food to men, and on the other are brought as a sacrifice to God. Unquote. 220. B. Relation of this sacrifice to the sacrifice on the cross and its properties. Quote, the sacrifice which is brought by God in the sacrament of the Eucharist is precisely the same as the sacrifice on the cross. Unquote. Further on, it says that this sacrifice has the property of propitiating God, and so it is necessary immediately after it, and as soon as possible to remember men. That will cause God to help men. Quote, Since the bloodless sacrifice has the power of propitiating and inclining God toward us, it naturally has the power to gain for us various benefits from God, and being propitiatory, 
it is at the same time precatory and intercessory. For this reason, the Holy Church, in bringing a bloodless offering, not only prays God to remit sins and saves the living and the dead, but also asks God for all kinds of gifts, spiritual and bodily, which are necessary for human life." Unquote. That ends the exposition of the sacrament of the Eucharist. It took up eighty pages. Everything which has been expounded here, the whole blasphemous delirium, all that was founded by Christ. The fall is taking place with terrible celerity, the fall from the height of questions into the bog of most incomprehensible superstitions. The first fall happened when it was asserted that God redeemed us in a visible manner, and now the last when there are described the actions of that grace. There is no place to go any lower. What is the difference between a shuvash, who smears his god with cream, and an orthodox who eats a small piece of his god, who is hastening to offer five kopecks that his name may be mentioned in a certain place and at a certain time? Then follows the sacrament of repentance. 221. Connection with the preceding, conception of the sacrament of repentance and its various appellations. In the three saving sacraments of the Church, heretofore discussed by us, there is imparted to man the whole abundance of spiritual gifts. In the three saving sacraments of the Church, heretofore discussed by us, there is imparted to man the whole abundance of spiritual gifts which are necessary for him to become a Christian, and having become one, to abide in Christian godliness and attain everlasting happiness. Baptism purifies sinful man from all of his sins, both the original and the voluntary, and introduces him into Christ's kingdom of grace. Unction, with chrism, communicates to him divine powers for his strengthening and growth in the life of grace. The Eucharist furnishes him with divine food and unites him with the fountain of life and of grace. But since, having become completely cleansed from all sin in the bapt of baptism, man is not freed from the consequences of original sin and inherited corruption, such as in the soul, the propensity to do evil, and in the body, diseases and death. Since even after baptism, being a Christian, he may sin, and even very often, 1 John 1, 8 and 10, and be subject to diseases, sometimes very serious ones, which bring him to the grave. It has pleased the all-good God to establish in his church two other sacraments as two saving remedies for his ailing members, the sacrament of repentance, which remedies our spiritual ailments, and the sacrament of unction with oil, which extends its saving action over the bodily ailments." Unquote. But why only over the ailments? 
Did we not hear before that the redemption freed men from diseases and death, and that this redemption becomes operative through the sacrament of unction with oil? Consequently, unction with oil destroys diseases and death, but laws are not written for the theology. Unction with oil, as will be seen later, operates against diseases and death, but only a tiny little bit. Quote, Repentance, taken in the sense of a sacrament, is a sacramental action in which the pastor of the church, by strength of the Holy Ghost, absolves the repentant Christian from all sins committed by him after his baptism, so that the Christian again becomes innocent and sanctified, such as he came out of the waters of baptism. Unquote. From the standpoint of the church, what is important in this sacrament is not the humility with which the repentant man approaches it, not that verification of himself, but only that purification from sin which the hierarchy dispenses by force of an imaginary power. I even wonder why the church does not entirely abolish this sacrament, substituting for it that remissory prayer which it has introduced and which is said over the dead, quote, I, unworthy man, by force of the power given to me, remit your sins." Unquote. The Church sees only this external imaginary purification, and cares only for it, that is, it sees only the external action to which it ascribes a curative significance. What is taking place in the soul of the repentant sinner is of no consequence to it. Though there are added certain reflections about how the repentant sinner is to approach the sacrament, they are given only en passant, and are no important condition under which the imaginary purification takes place. The whole matter is in the imaginary purification over which the hierarchy has the power. The proof is given, as in the case of all the other sacraments, that it was established by Christ. But as in all sacraments, there is not the slightest proof that Christ uttered the words which he spoke, no matter how we may understand them, having the sacraments in view. 2.22. The Divine Establishment and the Efficacy of the Sacrament of Repentance To prove this imaginary power, they are reduced the words of Matthew, 18. 17.18, which are explained in this sense, that the pastors have always enjoyed the divinely given right to bind and loose. The hierarchy understands these words to mean that it has the right to remit sins, and everything is based on that conversation. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Matthew eighteen seventeen eighteen. 18 Here is the whole passage. Quote, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, these words the hierarchy omits in order to introduce its own interpretation. Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. 
if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained a brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Matthew eighteen fifteen through 18 Unquote. This clear place, which is given as an instruction for all men, is expounded topsy-turvy only because here is used the word assembly, which later has received a different meaning and is represented as a confirmation of an imaginary power of the hierarchy, which is that of remitting sins. But let us assume, contrary to the text and to common sense, that these words were addressed by Christ not to all men, but exclusively to his disciples. Let us assume that he gave them the power to remit sins. In what way does from that result the sacrament of repentance, which makes each who receives it an innocent man? Again, there is the old trick. A sacrament, which was established after Christ, and of which no one in his time could have had any conception, is ascribed to Christ. Then follows the exposition of the rules of that sacrament. 2.23. Who may perform the sacrament of repentance, and who receives it? This sacrament, that is, the remission of sins, may be performed only by the priests. 2.24. What is demanded of those who approach the sacrament of repentance? Approaching repentance, it is necessary to have, one, contrition for sins. There is even a description of the character of that contrition. Quote, As regard the nature of the contrition respecting the sins, it is necessary to see to it that it does not result merely from the fear of punishment for the sins, not from the conceptions in general of the deleterious consequences for us arising from them in the present and in the future life, but mainly from love for God, whose will we have violated, and from a living consciousness that with our sins we have offended our greatest benefactor and father, have appeared ungrateful before him, and have become unworthy of him. 2. An intention of not sinning again. 3. An oral confession of our sins. And then the priest says, quote, Our Lord and God Jesus Christ, with the grace and gifts of his philanthropy, may forgive thee, my child, all thy trespasses, and I, unworthy priest, by the power given me, forgive and loose thee from all thy sins, in the name of the Father and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Unquote. And then the man is purified. It is very useful and necessary that the guiltiness of the sins should be loosed by the priest's prayer before the last day. But it does not say what will happen if there is not that contrition which is demanded, when there is not the firm, 
and determined intention not to sin again, while the priest gives the remission of sins. But we know that there never is that contrition which is demanded, nor that intention not to sin and to believe. Thus from the whole description of the sacrament of the church, which considers all its essence to consist in the power of remitting sins through its hierarchy, we get a kind of a toy, something ridiculous, or at least a senseless action. 225. The visible side of the sacrament of repentance, its invisible actions, and its extent. Here it is proved that there is no sin that could not be forgiven by the hierarchy, except the sin of not believing in what the hierarchy teaches. 226. Penances, their origin and use in the church. Quote, Under the name of penances are meant prohibitions or punishments, 2 Corinthians 2.6, which, according to the church rules, the minister of the church, as a spiritual physician, determines in the case of certain penitent Christians for the sake of curing their moral ailments." Unquote. This power the hierarchy has received from God. 227. The Significance of the Penances. 228. The Incorrectness of the Doctrine of the Catholic Church about the indulgences. For twenty-two pages we get an extended controversy with the Catholics about penances and indulgences. Penances are correctionary punishments and not punishments of revenge. All that is proved by Holy Scripture against the Catholics who prove the opposite from the same Holy Scripture. In regard to the indulgences, the question stands as follows. Christ has redeemed the whole world with a prophet. A surplus is left. Besides, the priests by their good lives have increased this surplus so that there is now a big pile of goodness. All these prophets are at the service of the church. With these prophets, which are hard to dispose of, the church, all the time guided by the Holy Ghost, pays God for the sins of its members, and the members pay to it not with something mysterious, but simply with cash. Now this doctrine is not so much objected to as it is corrected. Our hierarchy agrees to the fact that the church has complete charge of this capital, and with this capital pays for the sins of men, remitting the sins to these men in the sacrament of repentance. But the controversy is as to whether the church or its head may arbitrarily forgive these sins without the penitence of the sinner himself. The Catholics say that it can. Our men say that it cannot. Of course there is no sense in either assertion, just as there is no human sense in the question itself. But in this case, as in many other controversies with the Catholics and Protestants, our hierarchy if it has any distinguishing feature at all, is characterized by stupidity and by an absolute inability to express itself in conformity with the laws of logic. Precisely the same happens in this controversy. The Catholics are logically more correct. 
if the church can remit sins by dint of its power, and the church is always holy, why should it not pardon robbers, as indeed all the churches do? After that follows the sacrament of unction with oil. 229. Connection with the preceding. Conception of unction with oil and its appellations. Quote, the sacrament of repentance, as a healing of grace, is intended for all Christians, but only for curing their spiritual ailments. The sacrament of unction with oil is another healing of salvation, which is intended for Christians who are infirm of body, and has for its purpose the healing of not only their spiritual, but also their bodily infirmities." Unquote. Here is precisely a case which confirms what I have more than once said about the characteristic feature of our church, its stupidity. It was said before that repentance heals the soul of sins, and that unction with oil heals the body of diseases and death. It would, therefore, be necessary to explain why unction with oil cures neither diseases nor death. It cannot be concealed that there is no such cure. About the soul it is possible to say what you please, but here that cannot be done. The matter is too obvious. It is necessary either not to say anything about its ability to cure death, or to invent something. The Catholics are bound by logic, and so they have decided that this sacrament is imparted as a farewell ceremony over such patients as are sick unto death, and call it the extreme unction. But our church does not refute its power to cure, and has not invented anything to conceal the matter but as always, gets out of the difficulty by saying, quote, it does cure, but only in part, a tiny little bit, and at certain times, unquote. Then follow proofs of the divine origin of the sacrament. 2.30. The divine origin of the sacrament of unction with oil and its efficacy. There is not even a single hint in the Gospels as to the establishment of this sacrament by Jesus Christ, but that does not keep the theology from asserting that it has been established by God. Quote, of the sacrament of unction with oil, distinct mention is made in Holy Scripture by Apostle James, when he instructs the Christians, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? let him sing psalms, and immediately adds, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. James, verses 14-15 from these words there are disclosed to us at once the divine origin and its efficacy as a sacrament. 1. The divine origin, for on the one hand it is evident from the context that the apostle does not speak of unction with oil as of something new, which the Christians did not know before, but points out to them this means of healing as something which has existed before and which was universally known to them, and which he commands them to use in case of sickness. 
On the other hand, it is evident that the apostles never preached anything of themselves, Galatians 1.11.12, but taught only what they had been commanded by our Lord Jesus, Matthew 28.20, and what the Divine Spirit inspired them with, John 16.13, and it is known that they called themselves the servants of Christ and stewards and not establishers of divine sacraments, 1 Corinthians 4.1. Consequently, unction with oil, which is commanded to the Christians by St. James as a sacramental healing of diseases, both bodily and spiritual, was commanded by our Lord Jesus Christ himself and by the divine spirit. We do not find any statement in Scripture at what particular time our Lord established this sacrament, for many things which he taught and did on earth are not transmitted in writing. John 21.25 But it is most natural to think that this sacrament, like two others, baptism and repentance, through which remission of sins is granted, was established by our Lord after his resurrection, when all power was given unto him in heaven and in earth. Matthew 28.18 and when he showed himself to the apostles for forty days, and spoke to them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, Acts 1.3, that is, of the establishment of his church, an essential part of which is formed by the sacraments. There are no other proofs. What is striking is that not only are there no foundations for any sacrament, but there is not even the slightest cause for this particular sacrament. Nonetheless, it is proved that this, too, was founded by God. 231. To whom and by whom the sacrament of unction with oil may be communicated. We are told that all the sick, and not merely the dying, as with the Catholics, may be anointed, and that the anointing may be done by priests, still better by bishops. Best of all it is, if seven priests do the anointing, but even three or one may do it. 232. The visible side of the sacraments of unction with oil and its invisible actions of salvation. The visible side consists in anointing and saying prayers, and the invisible side, what do you suppose it is? The invisible side is the healing of bodily infirmities. Quote, the sacrament of unction with oil is established more particularly for those who are sick in body. Consequently, the healing of bodily ailments forms the very first saving fruit of this sacrament." Unquote. The healing is classed with the invisible side, because of course unction with oil does not produce it. The theology is not embarrassed, but says outright that there is a cure, but it is invisible. Quote, this action does not always follow on unction with oil, that is true, but a. at times it actually takes place and the patient slowly gets well and rises from his sickbed. More frequently, b. the dangerously sick man receives at least temporary relief from disease or is strengthened or aroused to bear it, and that is also one of the aims of unction with oil. For the verb 
signifies not only raise up, but also to rouse, to encourage, to strengthen. At times, however, see, those who receive the sacrament of unction with oil do not receive from it a healing of ailments, perhaps for the same reason that those who receive the sacrament of the Eucharist, instead of saving fruits, only eat and drink damnation for themselves. 1 Corinthian 11.29 That is, on account of their unworthiness, on account of an absence of a living faith in our Lord Jesus, or on account of hard-heartedness. Finally, D. To wish or to demand that each time when a man is receiving unction with oil, he should be cured of his diseases, would be the same thing as demanding that he should never die. But that is contrary to the very plan of our regeneration, according to which it is necessary for us to dispose this sinful mortal body in order to clothe ourselves in proper time beyond the grave in an immortal body. For this reason every man who approaches the sacrament of unction with oil, every sick person, ought entirely to abandon himself to the will of God, who knows better than we, to whom it is more useful to send down a cure and prolong his life, and whose life is to be cut short before its time. What use was there then of talking about the cure of diseases and of death? And so the first invisible action is the non-existing cure of diseases. The second is the cure of spiritual infirmities. After that there is a refutal of the doctrine of the Catholics, which ascribe at least some meaning to the sacrament. What is refuted is that this sacrament is meant as a farewell action before death. Then follows the sixth sacrament, established by God. Connection with what precedes Marriage as a divine institution and its aim, the conception of marriage as a sacrament and its appellations. Quote, Three sacraments of the Orthodox Church, baptism, unction with chrism, communion, are intended for all men, so that all may become Christians, and then abide in Christian godliness and obtain everlasting salvation. Two other sacraments, repentance and unction with oil, are intended for all Christians as two saving remedies, one in case of spiritual infirmities, and the other in case of bodily and, at the same time, spiritual ailments. But there are two more sacraments established by God, which even though they are not predetermined and necessary for all men, and though they are not necessarily directly for each of the members of the Church, are necessary for the purposes of the Church in general, for its existence and flourishing condition. Those are a. The sacrament of marriage, which communicates to certain persons grace for the natural procreation of children, the future members of the Church, and b. The sacrament of priesthood, which communicates to special persons the grace for the supernatural procreation of the children of the Church, and for their education for the eternal life." Unquote. But according to its definition, a sacrament is a holy action which under a visible form communicates to the soul of the believer the invisible grace of God. 
but the procreation of children is not an invisible grace. Besides, in defining a sacrament, it was said, quote, For the performance of a sacrament three things are needed. A proper substance, such as water, is in baptism, bread and wine in the Eucharist, oil and other substances according to the sacrament, unquote. Here, no substance is needed. Marriage apparently does not fit in with the definition of a sacrament, and in general differs from all the other sacraments by this essential feature, that in all other sacraments, including priesthood, by sacrament are understood external actions, which are performed over something which is supposed to take place, which is not connected with anything real, and which is entirely useless, whereas here, by sacrament, are meant certain external actions which are performed over something real, and one of the most important acts in human life. The theology says, Marriage may be considered from two sides, as a law of nature, or as a divine institution, and as a sacrament of the New Testament Church, which now, after the fall of man, sanctifies this law. The sanctifying sacrament consists in this. In order to sanctify, uplift, and strengthen the law of matrimony, which is holy and pure in itself as to its origin from God and as to its purposes, but which because of the disturbance of human nature has fallen under the harmful influence of sin and has in many ways been distorted by men who have abandoned themselves to sensuality. Our Lord Jesus has been pleased to establish in his church a special sacrament, that of marriage. Under the name of this sacrament is understood a sacred action in which to the contracting parties, who before the church make a promise of mutual conjugal fidelity, there is communicated from above through the blessing of the servant of the church divine grace, which sanctifies their conjugal union elevates it to an image of Christ's spiritual union with the church, and then cooperates with them in the blessed acquisition of all the purposes of marriage." Unquote. That is in connection with the law of marriage, which in itself is holy, the hierarchy finds it necessary to sanctify again. 234. A divine origin of the sacrament of marriage as a sacrament, apparently does not and cannot exist in the Gospels, nor is there anything in them to hitch on to, and so the place is chosen in the Gospel where the word marriage is used. That place about the marriage in Cana of Galilee, which has nothing in common with the establishment of marriage, not even with its blessing and approval, is taken as a basis. The theology itself feels, as in the case of the unction with oil, that there is nothing to hitch on to, and so it says, quote, Of when and how the Lord established the sacrament of marriage, whether when he was present at the marriage at Cana of Galilee, John 2, 1-11, or when, in consequence of the well-known question of the Pharisees, he disclosed the true conception about marriage, and said, What God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. 
Matthew 19.3-12 Or after his resurrection, when for forty days he appeared to his disciples, and spoke to them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of heaven, that is, of what had references to the establishment of his church, Acts 1.3, the gospel does not say anything, for there are many other things which Jesus did, which are not written in these books, John 2.30.11.25. But that is the very reason why it is considered proved. 2.35. The visible side of marriage and invisible actions. The visible side of marriage is this, that groom and bride promise to be husband and wife, and the priest pronounces certain words. The invisible side, one, grace sanctifies the union as of Christ with the church, two, strengthens as Christ with the church, three, cooperates in the performances of the obligations as Christ with the church. Suddenly there is for some reason introduced the comparison of Christ and the church with husband and wife, and in that the invisible side of the sacrament is supposed to lie. 236. Who may perform the sacrament of marriage, and what is demanded of those who proceed to this sacrament? Popes may unite in marriage. The orthodox, or at least one of the contracting parties and orthodox, may marry. All others do not marry, but only cohabit. 237. The properties of Christian marriage, sanctified by the sacrament. One may marry only one woman, and divorce is granted only in the case of adultery. All that is regarded as a sacrament founded by God himself. Of the sacrament of priesthood. 238. Connection with the preceding, the priesthood as a special divinely established ministration in the church hierarchy, and its three degrees, conception about priesthood as a sacrament. Quote, in expounding the doctrine of the sacraments, we have heretofore remarked in the case of each of them that it may be performed and communicated to the believers only by the pastors of the church, by bishops and presbyters. But in order that men may become pastors of Christ's church and receive the power to perform the sacraments, the Lord has established a special sacrament, the sacrament of priesthood. Indeed, leaving out of consideration the fact that of all the sacraments not one has been established by Christ as a sacrament, and that in reference to four of them, to unction with chrism, repentance, unction with oil, and marriage, not even the slightest reference have been discovered. All the sacraments, even according to the definition of the church, become sacraments only when they are performed by pastors of the church, that is, by true pastors, and so all the preceding sacraments are based on the sacrament of priesthood. If this is not a sacrament, and its origin cannot be proved, all the other sacraments fall of themselves, even though their efficacy may be proved. Further on it says, quote, Priesthood is understood in two senses, 
as a special class of men, a special ministration in the church, known under the name of hierarchy, and as special sacerdotal action, by which men are consecrated and ordained for this ministration. In the first case, we have already discussed the priesthood, and we have seen that the Lord himself established the hierarchy, or the order of pastors, whom alone he has empowered to be teachers in the church, performers of sacraments, and spiritual stewards, and that he has by no means permitted all the believers to assume all that. Unquote. The sacraments may be performed only by priests, but in order to be a priest, it is necessary that the sacrament of priesthood is performed on him. In the preceding articles, it was said that every sacrament is inefficacious if it is not performed by real priests. In the explanations, much was said about the heretical teachings which have a false priesthood. Consequently, the whole strength, not only of this sacrament of priesthood, but of all other as well, lies in the clear proofs that the priesthood was established by Christ, that the transmission of this priesthood was established by Him, and that among the many existing usurping priesthoods, the one under discussion is the only true one. And so we get 239. The divine establishment and efficacy of the sacrament of priesthood. The proof is given that this sacrament is from God. Not only are there no proofs of the establishment of this sacrament, but as in the case of the sacraments of unction with chrism and with oil, there is not the slightest reference to this sacrament in the Gospels. Here are the proofs. Quote, the divine establishment of the sacrament of priesthood is to be seen from the actions of the holy apostles who themselves by the instruction from the holy ghost who reminded them of everything which the lord jesus commanded them john 14:26 performed this sacrament and by the laying on of hands raised to the three degrees of the hierarchy then follow the proofs of the fathers and of the councils, so that it is even more obvious than in the case of the previous sacraments that this sacrament was invented by the hierarchy independently of the teaching of Christ. Then follows an exposition of the sacrament. 240. The visible side of the sacrament, its invisible action and unrepeatedness. The visible side of the sacrament consists in the laying on of hands on the head and in the saying certain words. Quote, the invisible action of the sacrament of priesthood consists in this, that by it, after the prayer, there is actually imparted to him who is being ordained divine grace to correspond to his future ministration, the grace of priesthood. Unquote. The importance of the sacrament is as follows. Quote, if any one will reflect how important it is for a man, while he is still burdened with flesh and blood, to be present near the blessed and immortal essence, 
he will see clearly what honor the grace of the Spirit has bestowed on the priests. By them the sacrifices are offered, and all the other high ministrations are performed, which have reference to our dignity and salvation. They still live and move about upon earth, and they have received the power which God has granted neither to the angels nor to the archangels." Unquote. Quote, the grace of priesthood which is imparted through the laying on of hands, though in various degrees, upon deacons, presbyters, and bishops, and which vests them with a certain measure of spiritual power, abides in the soul of each of them unchangeably, for which reason neither a bishop nor a presbyter nor a deacon is a second time ordained for the same dignity, and the sacrament of priesthood is regarded as being unrepeatable. Unquote. Controversies about it. 241. Who may perform the sacrament of priesthood, and what is demanded of those who receive it? Quote, According to the teaching of the Orthodox Church, the power to lay on hands for an order of priesthood belongs only to the immediate successors of the apostles, the bishops. Unquote. Then follow long controversies about when this laying on of hands is efficacious and when not. Priests must be, quote, 1. Orthodox Christians, 2. Men experienced in the word of faith and in life, according to the righteous word, 3. If they are chosen to the dignity of bishop, they must be free from the bonds of marriage, but if they are chosen to the rank of presbyter or deacon, they may, if they so wish, live in a condition of matrimony. Unquote. End of section 25